Welcome back to the podcast. This is Sharat Kareev and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And we are back in Science in the Bible today. Uh, but before I jump into that, I just want to remind everyone, if you want to get more science with Michael, uh, there will be an opportunity this spring on the marine biology trip. And we are still running our $100 off coupon until January 21st. So if you'd like to take advantage of that $100 off on your final trip cost, you can go to our website and click on the events tab, or you can go to evidenceforfaith.org slash 2022 marine biology to get all the details on that coupon and all the trip details as well. So today's topic in science in the Bible is actually a really big one that you probably heard about if you've been on the internet or really just anywhere watching the news. <laughs> and that is psychology and mental health. I think this is going to be a really interesting topic for everyone today because everyone's talking about it and we're talking about it in the church. And I think a lot of people just don't really know what does the Bible say about this? Well, actually, the Bible has a whole lot to say, and this this lesson is really only going to scratch the first surface. So if you want a good introduction to psychology and mental health from God's perspective, this is going to be a great episode for you. So as always, this program is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support this program and keep it free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence to number four, faith.org slash give. And without further ado, here is Michael in Science in the Bible, Psychology and Mental Health. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. I'm so glad you're joining me as we're continuing in this study that we're doing, the series on science versus the Bible, science and the Bible. It's, it's a fascinating study. If you've been following these, I hope you have uh, found them very uh, entertaining and interesting and informative because there's so much information in, in the Bible concerning science. Though the science is the Bible is not a science textbook. I mean, I've said that from the first introduction. It's not a science textbook, but what is science that is contained in the Bible is always going to be accurate. Though science disagrees with it, in some cases for centuries, they eventually come around and see, you know something, the Bible was right all along. And that's what we're going to see with this one. In this lesson, as we are continuing and coming to a close near, uh, nearly now in this series, we're going to be talking about psychology in the Bible. Uh, psychology in the Bible. Now, there's two sciences that really have disagreed. Some of the famous uh, psychologists of the 1800s and even the early 1900s totally disagreed with what the Bible was and, and said that, you know, belief in God and belief in the Bible and stuff was paramount to almost being insane in some cases, or at least very immature. That um, was used more as an escape of anything else. Well, our, um, the, the science of psychology has come a long way since Dr. Freud, and there have been a lot of things that have been discovered just in the latter part of the 20th century and, and now even into the beginning of our 21st century. We're seeing so many new things, um, and the thing is, they fit with what the Bible says. So we're going to take a look at some of these. Now, as we do this, um, there is, like I say, so much information about psychology, which is a newer science now. That's No, it's not... Um, like some nutrition things that go back for a long time or whatever. Uh, psychology is more of a new science and starting more in like in the 1800s and really starting to grow leaps and bounds in the early uh, 1900s. But um, the Bible is a collection of books that date back all the way to 1450 BC, so 3,400 years ago. And the data that is in here um, in some cases, dealing with psychology has been overlooked for centuries. As a matter of fact, I can't remember the last time sitting in a church service and listening to a pastor talk on psychology in the Bible. I do remember one time in, when I was in high school, this taking place, and a lot of what the pastor uh, was saying at, at this revival or summer event, uh, event thing that I was at was actually contrary to some of the stuff that actually uh, was found in some psychology books. So there's uh, there's been a lot of misinformation going on. And also psychology has been evolving. I was scary about using that word because some people just turn me off when I say evolution or evolving, but it does. Um, science sort of does change as time goes on. They're incorrect and then they find things that are correct. You know, for many centuries, science will say that this is, and we've been seeing this through the series, that this is what is true. Science is truth. And then they find out science 
science was wrong all along and we have to change our science books. I mean, that's just what science is. It's constantly making changes. It's the most changing thing it seems like there is. And in today, um, what we're going to do is look at this Bible that we have, because what is uh, psychological and for health science found in the Bible is actually really true today. And it, it gives us good health. And as we've seen in the series, science has many times been at odds with the Bible. But this is really interesting because what God wrote, our perfect God, what he wrote um, in this, just it's, it's inspired. He, he gave this information to people and they wrote this down and it's so accurate. It's just fascinating. So we must remember now that the original authors of the Bible didn't come up with this stuff on their own. This is, our Bible is not manufactured by men, which some skeptics and critics say, that it was just different people writing this. They just got up one morning and started writing. No, that is not true. The Bible is very clear in many passages saying that this was coming directly from God. God's inspiration on men, and then men wrote these things down. So if God wrote it and he's a perfect holy God, what he's gonna write in there, because he can't be uh, found with error, he doesn't make mistakes, it's gonna be true. And that's what we're going to see as we do this lesson here. It's just so exciting to see things on psychology. Now, in all honesty, I am not a psychologist. I'm not even a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist. I have taken some classes. I have taken counseling courses and stuff. But I in no way am saying that I am an expert in this. I've done a lot of reading, and I'm going to quote a lot of passages as we do this. I'm not going to give you my own interpretation of what psychology says. We're going to go um, through quoting different things and from different books and different periodicals and peer journals as we do this. But that's how we're going to take a look. We'll look at the Bible, what it says, then we'll look at what science, um, the science of psychology goes through. Now, for the subject of psychology or emotional science, or if we want to say we can call it mental health, there are too many numerous passages, too many passages in the Bible to cite in this one lesson that we're doing. It's sort of like the nutrition lesson that we did before. There's just so much there. Well, we can't do it all. Um, one could actually do a whole semester's course in a college, a five-hour course, specifically just on psychology and mental health from the Bible. So we aren't going to be able to cover the entire content, but we will cover some major areas. And we'll divide this up primarily into two subtopics. What we find basically in the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, the, the beginning part of the Bible, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But then we're going to look more um, a little bit later on with primarily looking at Proverbs. And we're not even going to get into much in the Psalms. This lesson would just get way too long. But we will look at Proverbs, the book of wisdom, and a book that was written actually for teens. Uh, the only book in the Bible specifically written for young people, uh, the book of Proverbs. And we'll take a look at that and, and uh, the wisdom that is in there. And that's how we'll conclude this series. So with this, as I said, we're going to start with the Torah, first of all. And as I've said many times already, I've been following the series. The Torah was written um, by Moses around 1450 BC, somewhere in there. And to study mental health, one way I want to approach this is let's take a look at the guy who's writing this um, from God, who's actually penning this. When God is telling him, write this down, he's the one doing it, and that's Moses himself. Now, Moses, the Bible tells us, was 120 years old when he died. After growing up in Pharaoh's palace, living in the palace for 40 years, then he lived in the wilderness for 40 years, and then he led the people of Israel out, the Hebrew people, out of Egypt, um, up to the borders of the Promised Land for the next 40 years, and then he died. So, Taking a look at this, this man's life, because he was a very special person. And his book is, or his death is recorded in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, towards the end of that book. But it also gives us a clue about mental health by looking at his character. And that's what I want to take a look at. The character of Moses, because this guy was, no matter how you look at it, this guy was successful very successful. And I want to show you how he is described in death, because that's going to tell us a lot about what his life was like. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7, out of the English Standard Version we're going here, it reads, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor 
unabated. Okay, what does that mean? Actually, he was in really good health. At 120 years old, he was still strong. He could still see well. I can't read a book or anything without a pair of glasses nowadays because I've reached into the years of um, 64 years old now, and I can't read without having glasses uh, up close. Distance I can see fine, but I can't see things up close very well. Everything's blurry. Moses didn't have this problem. He wasn't wearing spectacles or anything. This is giving us a lot of information about what this guy was like. And if we study his life, wow, we learn a lot how this guy was. Because, like I say, most geriatric men, when they die, if they get to live to 100 years of age, let's be frank, their physical and mental attributes are very are not very well pronounced. Um, in short, they're sort of deficient. Some people lose much of their mental health uh, capacity decades before even reaching the age of 100 if they even come close to living that long. Apparently, Moses was not like this. He was healthy mentally and even physically up to his death. He, he continued to lead the nation of Israel for 40 years right up to his death and, and through some of the absolute worst conditions imaginable. This guy was successful. And we can learn a lot about psychology by studying what's written about this guy's life. For instance, during those last 40 years, as he's leading the Hebrew nation through the wilderness, he puts down rebellions of the people and his family, his own family. Um, he fights wars. He stood up to many people, of his own people even, trying to plot his own death and, and trying to plot his murder. He faced extreme situations like hunger, thirst, they're out in the desert and stuff, constant complaining from the people. And he, he died with the greatest respect of the people. They mourned for him for a long time. How did this guy do all this? How was he so successful with all of these threats, with all of these problems? You'd think this guy would be under such stress, emotional stress and anguish, but he doesn't. How does he handle his emotions? What drove this man? And that's what we're going to see. And we're going to learn from the psychology of this guy and what we can apply to our lives. It's so interesting because we get a clue to his mental health by what he wrote uh, for God himself, who spoke to Moses. It says he's, God spoke to Moses face to face and told him what to write down for the people. And, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, it reads, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friends. I mean, what, what kind of relationship did they have? But you see, they're talking face to face. Moses speaks to God and God speaks to him. Wow, what Moses learned from the almighty, eternal, omnipotent God is recorded in the Torah. And some of the basic facts that science now agrees is healthy for people is found here. So let's explore what Moses was telling us as we go through these scriptures and, and see what we can learn from psychology and how psychology agrees with the Bible on this. First of all, let's begin with number one. Moses maintains a good character. Throughout all of this, he maintains, as he's leading these, these people, he maintains a good character. That's something we should learn, to maintain a good character. Much of Moses' success can be traced directly to the character that he developed over the years. Now, he came from a formal training. I mean, he went to, you know, Farrell High School, you know, um, Amenhotep High School or something like this. He graduated with honors at Faro University. I mean, he was raised in all of this with very, very formal training uh, that he received in the court. So he, he had the best education that was available at that time anywhere in the world. He had the best education. And um, much of it was also learned after this, when um, after he turned 40, he learned a lot more stuff. Some examples of these character traits that I'm talking about are, for instance, and we can learn from this too, Moses prayed. Prayer was a big part of Moses' life. Moses prayed. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 13, it talks about Moses talking to God and praying to God. Talking to God, that is prayer, folks. 
Prayer has been studied by many major universities and medical research facilities and has been found to be very beneficial to one's health. A 2009 study by Koenig and colleagues found that six weekly in-person Christian prayer sessions with patients at a primary care office lowered their depression and anxiety symptoms and increased their optimism. This is recorded in the Internal uh, Journal, International Journal of Psychiatry, uh, which was published in this issue um, in 2009. It was volume number 39. And they talk about this. Um, it's called, the title of this article was A Randomized Trial of the Effect of Prayer on Depression and Anxiety. Prayer does, and there's more studies that we could we could post, but this we could stand here for an hour doing this. There are so many studies that show that prayer does help with depression and anxiety and increases our optimism. Moses was one that prayed. And having uh, a description of his end life being as good as it was, I mean, prayer must be a key to this. So this helps with psychology and psychology now shows this is being true. Prayer is found in, in scripture in practically every book. Jesus himself instructed and taught his disciples to pray. Uh, to list all the verses in the Bible talking about that we should pray, it's going to take too much time. It's in there. But I will you know, just mention, Jesus himself taught the disciples to pray and told them to pray. Did this on numerous occasions. So that's one thing that we can learn directly from Moses. In developing a good character and a good life, we should pray. We should take time and talk with God and listen to God. Second, trust in the Lord. Now you might be thinking, these are psychological objectives. Yes, they are. As we look at this, because I'm going to show you how these things all relate through psychological papers, professionally published papers that support all this, trusting in the Lord. Moses trusted in God in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, specifically says this, that Moses was constantly putting his trust in God. Throughout the Exodus, with all the problems they were having as they left Egypt, Moses kept putting his trust in God, even when it didn't make sense to go to the to the border of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army behind you, and God says, don't worry. All these Egyptians you see, you're not going to ever see them again. You're going to take your staff, and you're going to strike the water, and I'm going to make a path for it. It didn't even make sense scientifically, but Moses trusted God. Well, doctors at Mayo Clinic published in the Mayo Clinical uh, Procedure, uh, volume 76 in the year 2001, uh, an article called Religious Involvement, Spirituality, and Medicine, Implications for Clinical Practice. And they did this, and what they found, these Mayo Clinic doctors basically published this paper indicating that many health benefits come from specifically trusting God. I mean, these <laughs> doctors from Mayo Clinic are generally pretty well respected. And these doctors here um, actually write an entire paper about this. And there's more papers that you can read on this. But this is a fascinating one showing that this takes place. Let me give you another one. A third thing that we can learn from Moses in his character building, courage and support of others. Courage and support of others. Now Moses, and I think most people who study this book, um, book of Exodus and, and the others will see, Moses is a true leader. This guy is leadership material. Um, he's one of my favorite Bible characters and he is a great leader. He was also, if you see and read his story, he is, an, he is also a protector of the people who are being threatened. Matter of fact, he was a little overzealous at one time because one of his Hebrew um, neighbors was being oppressed by an Egyptian. He kills the Egyptian. Um, so he goes a little overboard at times, but he really does care about the people. That's the key thing. He cares about people. He sees an injustice and he stepped in. Well, recent medical studies have shown that helping others in distress aids in our own mental health. There's a great article um, written, you can pull this off online, uh, Mental Floss, and it's actually entitled Scientific Benefits Helping Others. It's uh, from mentalfloss.com. It's a fantastic article you can read and about how if, if we help others, it actually, by helping others, we help ourselves. We help our own mental health. You ever done that? You ever go and, and help somebody out? The, the, the nice feeling you get afterwards, it makes you feel better. You feel really energetic and stuff. And you, you feel like, wow, I've accomplished something really good. I, I helped my fellow, my fellow neighbor and stuff. Yeah, we should do that. Another point 
that Moses does that we can learn from in psychology is the compassion and meekness. Moses was compassionate and he was a meek, a very humble person. And he understood and he felt compassion of others and he understood others and he, he supported them and he defended them. Who, who didn't understand. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, gives an example of this, how Moses supports people and defends people. Oh my gosh, there's been so many medical papers that show evidence of this. Um, one produced by uh, Berkeley, um, entitled, Should We Train Doctors for Empathy? By a Dr. Uh, Jill Sutty, uh, psychiatry. She, she writes a paper showing the benefits um, and, and evidence that expressing empathy to others leads to mental health benefits for us. By doing something good for others, we help our own mental capacity. We should do better. We should help people. And in doing so, we help ourselves in a way. Fantastic paper on this. Here's another one. Love the Lord. This is a biggie. Matter of fact, this is an important commandment in the Bible. Um, and it fits, you might be thinking, well, how does this fit psychology? Well, let me show you. According to the old school of psychology, Christian faith is of no benefit to any person. Like I say, it was an escape, um, an unhealthy escape, as some uh, psychologists in the 1800s, early 1900s said. Yet, a study in 2011 by Alex Bunn and David Randall, who published in the Christian Medical Fellowship, states, and I'm going to quote this, in contrast to the popular myth that Christian faith is bad for health, on balance and despite its limitations, the published research suggests that faith is associated with a longer life and a wide range of health benefits. In particular, faith is associated with improved mental health, unquote. What an amazing statement. And this is found, like I say, Christian Medical Fellowship, and it's entitled Health Benefits of Christian Faith by Alex Bunn and uh, David Randall. You can pull this up. I'm giving you a picture on the site here that you can see this. One of the main points of the Christian faith is to love God. That's one of the things we're supposed to do. And Moses just didn't love God. He talked with God. He talked with him face to face. He was devoted totally to God, no matter what anybody said, even his own relatives, he was totally devoted to God with all of his heart. We can learn a great example from that and we get health benefits as that paper suggests. Under God's direction, Moses wrote what's called the Shema, which um, means to hear and obey. It's, it is most likely uh, the most quoted passage and verse read in the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, as well, in, well as being a command from God. Orthodox Jews recite this a couple of times a day. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Sound familiar? It should, because Jesus even said this. Let me tell you the story, going to the book of Mark, chapter 12. A scribe, a scribe is an expert of the Jewish Old Testament, the Jewish law. A scribe comes up to Jesus. Jesus has been having arguments with, with these Pharisees and scribes and, and stuff. Well, this guy's been standing on the sideline and listening. And it's, we pick it up at verse 28, and look what happens here. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, this is Jesus, answered them well, he asked, and he's asking Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. There it is right there. We are to love God. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. A commandment directly from Jesus, directly from God to Moses to the people. We should love the Lord our God. And as we see, it gives health benefits, mental health benefits to us if we do this. Another factor in that same thing, the Shema, is to love your neighbor. Moses received God's commandment himself on Mount Sinai. And some of those commandments are not to steal 
or to lie. You know, the Ten Commandments. Don't steal, don't lie, don't lust after your neighbor's wife, things like this. In the book of Leviticus, though, God goes further about treating the way we're supposed to treat our neighbors. And we can gain great mental health from this. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 13 through 18, we read, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. In short, you do the best thing you can for your neighbor. You love your neighbor. Well, my neighbor, Michael, is not too lovable. Does God in this command say, well, only do this if they're lovable? We're supposed to do this all the time. Yes, this is a challenge. Moses, the people around him, they didn't like him half the time. Matter of fact, they're plotting his death sometimes, trying to overthrow him. Yet Moses still loved them. We can learn from this. This continues. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, there's no condition here if you only treat people who are nice to you nice. This is to treat everybody no matter what. I'll tell you, as a public school teacher, sometimes this was extremely difficult. <laughs> I, one thing is I used to uh, teach teachers and help train teachers to be teachers. I would often say that teaching basically has a couple of just a few little points to be a good teacher. One, one part of teaching, you got to know your material. You got to You got you to know it. Second, you've got to entertain. You've got to come across of putting the information. You just don't lecture. You entertain people, entertain your students. You, you've got to find some type of delivery that keeps their attention, in other words, while you give this information. And the third thing I always told my students and stuff was, you always love your students unconditionally, even when they don't deserve it. And that's the challenge. I have had a few students over the past that Boy, it seemed like their whole goal in life was to try to uh, make my life miserable and to be as un, um, make me trying to accept them and love them as difficult as can be. And sometimes I was human. Sometimes I didn't react real well. But one thing I did is I cared about my students quite a bit. They're my neighbors. I'm sharing a classroom. We're in a classroom all the time. That's very important. To love our fellow man as we love ourselves is quite a command. And it leads to good mental and physical health. Being kind to others produces. Let me give you an example of what happens. When you are kind to your neighbors, it, it helps you to produce a chemical called oxytocin. Oxytocin is a hormone. It's sometimes called the love hormone. It sounds like something out of the 60s. It's, it lowers blood pressure and helps in social bonding with people. Being kind also has been linked to higher levels of another chemical called dopamine in your brain. Dopamine is that feel-good chemical that your brain produces, your body produces, and it gives you a euphoric feeling. It helps your brain also to function properly and, and improves your moods and stuff. That's what dopamine does. So being kind is giving yourself a dose of this. Who, who doesn't want this? Uh, being kind, more oxytocin um, to help lower blood pressure and increase your social bonds. Dopamine, make you feel better, um, helps your brain to function, gets you in a better mood. Uh, and there's another one. Another study showed that being kind to others increases serotonin levels. Now, serotonin is a neurotransmitter um, that is produced by your nervous system that regulates our moods. And having um, higher levels of serotonin and stuff will improve your moods. Now, where am I getting all this? Is this like out of a, you know, some just simple little book? No, this is actually coming from uh, Cedar sinai blog, The Science of Kindness, February 13, 2019. They have a whole article about this, about 
biochemically what is going on when you are kind to others, which is exactly what the Bible is saying we're supposed to be. I mean, there's so many benefits to this. God was right as he's telling us all this. He didn't tell us about serotonin and oxytocin and dopamine. They wouldn't have understood that anyway. They, they just knew, hey, there's benefits to doing it. And God says there's benefits to doing it. Let's do it. And science is now showing God was totally correct. Here's another one. To love yourself. To love yourself. There's an old saying that health truly begins in the mind. How many people have come to an unfortunate ending of their lives simply because they didn't love themselves? As I was writing the series, I was listening, just so happened, I was listening to some Christmas music, and it was the Carpenter's Christmas album uh, was playing in the background. And I started thinking as I was writing this part here about Karen Carpenter, beautiful recording artist. My gosh, her voice, um, I think it was Paul McCartney said, of all the female voices he's ever heard in his life, and he's heard many, he said, when asked in an interview, who had the most beautiful, angelic voice, female voice of all time? Without a hesitation, he said Karen Carpenter, who died of anorexia early in her life. Why? She couldn't love herself. She couldn't love herself. She couldn't accept herself. Scores of other celebrities have had serious problems with stress and, and drug addictions and, and aggression and anorexia and stuff. Matter of fact, um, just watching the other day a commercial for Dr. Phil, and there's a lady who's going to be on um, sometime this week talking about um, that, that she's suffering from anorexia. And what it's coming down to is she doesn't love herself. She can't see herself. And it's causing stress in her body. It's causing some addictions of other things, of drugs and things, and, and even aggression at some points. All this happening to do because she has a low self-esteem. And this is common if you don't love yourself. You've got to be able to love yourself. It helps. Begin to love yourself and you'll see your outlook and things changing. Sometimes you need help. And that's where you go to experts in this to help you see these things. If you know somebody who's struggling with this, help them. Be kind about it. Help them. Don't make demands and stuff. Help them. Urge them. Help them to see about how they need to love themselves. How many people don't love themselves? I mean, just look at celebrities today. Um, as celebrities keep changing their body, the way that they look, having so many surgeries, cosmetic things, and what often happens as time goes on, it, it makes them look even worse because they can't accept themselves for who they are. How sad is this? That's going against what God says. We are supposed to love ourselves. You know, in the Journal of Social Issues, Jennifer... Uh, Crocker notes that many health and social problems are detrimental to a healthy body and our mind. And that's true. Uh, it is an absolute true statement. Um, and we should see this and we, we should understand this more. But we often don't. People just don't get it. In the book of Leviticus, God had Moses write this stuff down, a command for the people to love themselves. It says in Exodus 19, uh, 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you're supposed to love that, your neighbor, that means you're supposed to love yourself too. God is very concerned about our mental and physical health. Did you know that? He is very concerned about our mental and physical health. Jesus even quotes this passage in talking to that scribe, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second most important commandment. Here's another one. Moses spent time meditating. Meditation is talked about frequently in the Bible. Benefits of meditation. Oh, there are many. Now, let me explain something first of all. When I say the word meditation, some uh, Christians will automatically turn me off because what they think of is Eastern religions. That is not the type of meditation I'm talking about. It's not the same as biblical meditation. To explain the differences between Eastern religion meditation and biblical meditation, I'm going to go to Dr. Bill Bright, and Dr. Ron Jensen, uh, who discussed this in their book called The Kingdoms at War. And I'm going to quote them. Quote, Eastern meditation encourages people to focus on nothing or writhing themselves or on a universal power or force or on some seemingly meaningless word. Biblical concept of meditation is the idea of chewing as a sheep chews its cud. 
as we meditate on Scripture, we allow God's thoughts to permeate our lives, that they actually become our thoughts, resulting in new behavior patterns and changed lives. So in this book, they go on by taking some ancient Jewish writings that actually some actual Hebrew traditions have been written um, in the Mishnah and others on how to actually meditate. It's an eight-step process that the Jews would use. And here, I'm just going to give them to you easily here. Um, one, select a time to consecrate. So you've got to just not randomly do this. You set a time period that you're going to meditate that you're going to focus on God and his word and what he's saying, passage or something. That's the first step. Set a time. God is a God of order. We should be following his example and be orderly. Organize our lives. Second point, select a verse or a passage. Whatever you're studying, just take a verse. You don't have to do a whole chapter. Just take a verse or a couple of verses or a small passage and just sit and study that. Look for the who, what, when, where, how, hows of, of the passage, maybe. But select the passage. And the third thing is, once you've selected it, you study it. Then the fourth thing, try memorizing it. Keep repeating it over and over to try to put it into memory. That's always a good thing, because when you get under spiritual attack, you, you have things memorized, you can just pull these verses back out. Jesus did this when he was tempted. He pulled out passages from the Old Covenant to attack Satan with. Memorize Scripture. Fifth, view or have a, a visualized version of it in your mind. Try and visualize what you're reading in your mind. Now, if you've been to Israel, this is a lot easier. It's hard to explain that, but if you go to Israel, it's a lot easier when you see these places and stuff than to read these passages and you have it imprinted into your memory. It's so much easier to do this. So I encourage you to try and get a trip to Israel. Uh, we're planning on doing one in 2023 in January. Um, and come with us and you'll see this makes a major difference in the way that you view your Bible. The sixth step is personalize it. How do you do this? In prayer. Talk to God about the verse. What did you learn in this verse? What did you study? What did you see? Tell God, well, I, God, I think I see this. Or God, I see this. You know, or ask questions even. God, why did this happen like this? Why did you say it this way? Then sit back as you meditate and just listen for the Holy Spirit to teach you things. Listen to what God is going to put into your mind. What he's going to try and say to you. And the eighth step and the final one on this, whatever you learn, you apply it to your life. That's meditation. See, this is totally different than Eastern religion meditation. Apply it to your life. There are too many verses commanding us to pray often and to meditate on Scripture for me to cover in this session. We just can't do it. But one verse covers it well. Probably one of the best verses, and it's a very well-known verse, and most of you probably have heard this, and it's a good one to memorize. It's Joshua 1.8. Joshua was the successor of Moses, and he wrote this in chapter 1. Uh, the, right at the beginning of his book, he, he tells us this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. How about that for a promise coming from God? God promise you prosperity, and he promises you success if you meditate and follow him and what's written in his word. Now, I should just point out, when I say prosperity, I'm not talking about God's going to make everybody rich. Prosperity gospel is not found anywhere in scripture. When this is talking about prosperous, it's prosperous in God's view, not us becoming, oh, now I get to dry a you know, Mercedes Benz, and I get to live in a $2 million home and have an air-conditioned dog house for my dog and all this. No, that's not what that's talking about. Prosperous in God's way, success in God's way, which is the better way. The National Institute of Health has an excellent article describing the health benefits of meditation. Um, we're putting the website on our message here so you can pull this up if you want to read this. It's um, not a real lengthy article, but it describes things very easily about the health benefits of me uh, meditation from the National Institute of Health. Here's another one, handling stress. Hmm. Handling stress. When a person is under stress or worried, what is actually going on? I mean, think about this. When you are stressed or worried, what you're doing is you are assuming responsibility for the situation. This is something God doesn't condone. God doesn't tell us to do this. 
God tells us just the opposite. Don't dwell on it. Don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. Give it to him. Talk to him about it. Going back into meditation and prayer. Yet stress can indeed take a very terrible toll, not only on our mental health, but even our physical health as well. There are many, many scientific studies um, and documentation on this for me to cite all of them. There's no way, but one excellent paper, I will tell you, it's from the journal Experimental and Clinical Sciences, uh, the 2017 issue, volume seven, uh, 16, pages 1057 to 1072, has a beautiful article in here. And in this article, the authors describe many abnormalities associated with stress. It, it, they include uh, how stress impairs brain function, how it, it, it impairs memory, um, and, and even learning. You can get so under stress, you don't learn well. So that's why I used to tell my students when I taught, don't get stressed out about exams and stuff. It doesn't really help. Many of these same conclusions are covered in a book that's called None of These Diseases by Macmillan and Stern. An excellent book. I, I love this. It's a fun book to read. And um, you can get this. It's, it talks a lot about our mental health and stuff, among other things. It's a great read. Um, the Bible's Health Secrets for the 21st Century. It's, it's a phenomenal read. And encourage you to, to get that book. Um, the Bible, though, itself has so much written about to us about letting, uh, not letting stress and worry dwell in our minds. God knew this is unhealthy for us. He created this. He knows this. And so he frequently says in so many books, so many passages, that we should not worry, that we shouldn't be stressed. I mean, there are so many. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. How about John 14, 27? Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Do you notice that when we get stressed and we get anxious and we get scared and stuff, those are not spiritual gifts. I actually talked to a person one time and I asked him, do you know what your spiritual gift is? And this person actually, it was a college student, actually said to me, my spiritual gift is worrying. Uh, <laughs> that is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> That is not a spiritual gift. No. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by what? Prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God. Now, that's a spiritual gift. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your, notice what it says, minds in Christ Jesus. Mental health. It's there. Jesus, when he went and visited the house of Mary and Martha, if you remember the story in, in Luke chapter 10, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, relaxed and listening and learning. Martha is so stressed out about dinner. That's what she is going nuts over. She's missing the whole, uh, the most important things. And Jesus asked, actually has to correct her on this. Calm down, Martha. What you're doing is not that important. What your sisters found. This is important. We often get so messed up. And what happens? It affects our minds, as we see in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. This affects our minds. Which brings me to another one. I love this one in the Bible. Do you know laughter is talked about in the Bible? Laughter? Do you know that laughter has to do with mental health? Now, I'm not talking about laughing so much that they put you in an insane asylum, which they used to do. That's not what I'm talking about. But laughter brings joy. It's in the Bible. It's in Psalm 126, verse 2. So it's right in the Bible for this. Now, I've got to tell you a little story here. I remember a time years ago when I was ill. I was in extreme pain, so bad I could not stand it anymore, and I finally went to the hospital for help. Um, my blood pressure, when I got there, they took my blood pressure. My systolic was over 200. I was in so much pain. Uh, pain can do that. Um, and I was expecting them to, the doctor to come in and say, okay, let's give him a shot of morphine or something or some other drug. But that's not what happened. What happened was really sort of strange. The doctor, after he came in and um, looked at my stats and was seeing what, my, why I was there, he took me, um, he says, follow me. And we walked down out of the examination room into another room down the hall. And it was a small little room. And in this room, there was a, um, like a TV on a big rack, a wheeled rack, and it had a DVD VHS player on it. 
And he took me into this tiny little room. There was a bed over on the side, as most hospital rooms are like that. And he set me in this tiny little room in there with the TV. And then he, uh, he dimmed the lights. As he's dimming the lights, he asked me this question. He says, what do you think's funny? Uh, excuse me? What do you think's funny? What, what makes you laugh, he says. What, do you ever watch TV and you laugh? What makes you laugh? And I thought, why is he asking me this? So I said, well, um, well, one thing, those who know me well, uh, Mr. Bean. I said, Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean cracks me up. If you're familiar with who Mr. Bean is, English comedian, Rowan Atkinson, those Mr. Bean episodes, they do. They just crack me up. I can't watch them and not laugh out loud. Um, he wasn't that familiar with Mr. Bean. He says, what else does? And I said, Laurel and Hardy. The old Laurel and Hardys from the 1930s. I, I just love them. They crack me up. I laugh out loud. Hmm, what else makes you laugh? And I thought, why is he asking me this? Just give me some morphine or something. But he said, uh, he asked again, what makes you laugh? I said, well, um, Roadrunner cartoons, the old classic Roadrunners, not the newer ones, the old classic. Um, I just, I laugh out loud when I watch those. As I do, I said too, Tom and Jerry, the old classic Tom and Jerry's from like the, the uh, 30s and 40s and 50s. I said, they, they just crack me up. Uh, the newer ones don't, but the old ones, oh my gosh, I laugh out loud. And as I'm sitting there puzzled, he goes over to the counter, uh, like a drawer counter, opens up a drawer, and I can see there's a whole pile of DVDs and VHS tapes in there. And he pulls one out, takes it over to the machine, puts it inside the machine, turns the TV on, and he says, just lay down. Um, the room's darkened. He says, uh, just lay down, and I want you to watch television. Um, watch these. And... Um, he says, I'll, I'll, I'll be checking on you, but just sit back and watch this. And he walked out of the room. And I thought, and I'm paying money for this? Uh, <laughs> what it was, it was Tom and Jerry, the old Tom and Jerry's. And so I started watching it. And as I laid there, and I did, I'm, I know I was laughing at times out loud with some of those. Um, the one with Corn Pone and uh, uh, Jerry's little cousin with a guitar, if you're familiar with Tom and Jerry's. That one just, to this day, every time I watch that, I crack up. Um, is you is or is you ain't my baby when Tom sings that uh, to another a female cat. I, I crack up. I just think it's the funniest thing. And, and some of the other things, even right now, I've got some visions in my mind. It's making me want to laugh. And so I was laughing. Do you know the doctor didn't come back? He said he was going to check on me. He didn't come back for over an hour. When he finally came back, I, I had lost track of the time. And he walks back into the room. He says, how you doing? I said, well, <laughs> I'm laughing. I said, I'm doing fine. He came over immediately, took my blood pressure. It had dropped significantly. Wow. No medication. He asked me how my pain was. I replied, it's still there, but it's not nearly to the level I came in with. I said, it's... It's to a point I actually can handle. And I said, I don't think I need uh, pain med, like a morphine shot or anything. To be honest, I was absolutely amazed when this happened. And after this episode, when I realized what this doctor had done, I went home and later on, I got on my computer when I felt like I could do this. I got on my computer and I started researching medical papers on how laughter helps medically physiologically and mentally. I was just amazed at how many papers have been published specifically on this, how laughter makes one joyful and helps our mental status. Uh, one article I'll give you here is, it's called Today's OR Nurse. And the article was written in 1993. It's the November, December issue. And um, the title of the article is Seriously Laughing Matters. Or, or here's another one, Holistic Nursing Practice, that journal. Um, the 1996 issue, January 10th, um, has an article there called Humor, The Antidote for Stress. I mean, this, they're both, and there's so many others you can read. How they have done studies, recent studies, and showing that laughter does make a difference. And it's really cool. And, and, and related to this is dancing. Dancing in the Bible. Yes, dancing is in the Bible, and it's related to laughter. It does a lot of the same things. Harvard Medical Magazine, the winter issue of 19, or I'm sorry, of 2015, has an article, Dancing in the Brain. And it shows the same thing, that dancing actually helps relieve stress. Actually, can, uh, dancing can, can lower blood pressure. Now, it depends, of course, what kind of dancing you're doing. Some dancing, I think, will do just the opposite. But it, we're talking about, you know, 
practical dancing here, maybe waltzing or something, I don't know. Uh, Pasa doble may be a little different, but um, there, there are some dancing, just dancing, getting up and just moving around like that does a lot of things that are benefiting for us. And you know what else? Singing. Singing helps our mental health. According to the British Medical Journal, in August 10th of 2019, there was an article written, this is the title of the article, Psychosocial Singing Interventions for the Mental Health and Well-Being of Family Carers of Patients with Cancer Results from a Longitudinal Controlled Study. Don't you love titles like that? Wow. In this article, it talks about singing is a promising multimodal psychosocial intervention that has been used in medical studies, mental health studies in particular, and well-being um, patients and stuff to help them with cancer even. It's amazing what we're starting to find out. This was in 2019. What they are discovering about singing, dancing, laughing, it's amazing. And God has this stuff in his Bible, in his scriptures, and, and these letters, these love letters that he's written us that we're supposed to be like this. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to laugh. He wants us to be like that. The Bible has cases like this. Uh, when After crossing the Red Sea, Moses and the people, what'd they do? They sang and they danced. Exodus 15. In Judges chapter 5, um, the Israelites, the Hebrews, were under attack and oppressed by an, a foreign nation. And, and Deborah and, and Barak, they, they, uh, through the intervention of God, they defeat their enemies. And then there's a big song dance party that takes place afterwards. It's in the Bible, folks. David talks about it. There's other passages that you can find. Laughing, dancing, singing, these are really important. And you know, let let you in on a little secret. Um, I don't tell many people this, but I suffer from depression. I do. Practically everyone in my family suffered from depression. My mother suffered from depression. Um, other family members I have suffer from depression. Um, many have had to take uh, or are taking uh, medication to help them with this. I don't. And um, I've never had to take it, though I probably at times people would say maybe I should have. But I've tried not to ever take it because I have seen growing up how stress um, and, and how things like this, uh, depression and, and stress, can really hurt a person and make them sick. And so I, as a child, started seeing this, even before the depression, depression sort of hit me, I started noticing it in other people and in family members and friends and things like this. And so I started recognizing signs of it and trying to find way of what was going to be. And, and so I sort of forced my way not to accept the delivery of the package of depression when it comes. I'm not always successful at this. And a few years back, one of my son-in-laws um, came up to me one day and asked me, he says, I know that your family suffers from depression, and you do too. He was my student, by the way, I should tell you, for a while. And he says, I know you suffer from depression. I want to know, because you don't take medication for it. And I go, no, I don't. He goes, when really depressing times hit you, when this illness really starts to come forward, what do you do? I said, well, I deny uh, delivery. He goes, what does that mean? I said, well, I try not to think about it, for one. I don't want to dwell on it. I start seeing the, the symptoms of depression hitting me, and I forcibly try to change. He says, but how do you do that? I told him, I sing. What do you sing? I sing hymns. A lot of times when I'm depressed, what I just automatically do when I start recognizing the signs of depression, I start singing hymns. I love to sing hymns. And I'll sit with a hymnal in a chair, or I'll go to a room, shower in the morning if it's hitting me like that or whatever. But um, I used to walk when I worked at a camp in the north woods of Wisconsin. I lived two miles from the camp. I used to walk through the forest. I spent many times singing, particularly on my walks home. I would sing hymns. And that helps. Well, there's scientific papers showing this does help. I didn't dance too much because knowing me, I'd trip over my feet and fall down, break an arm or something. But I did sing. As we sort of wrap this up here, I just want to show you um, a few more things. But one I want to point out to you. In 1953, there was a publication called The Personality Manifestations in Psychomotor 
illness. In this publication, doctors determined that the brain is the seat of emotions and that emotions can, can raise havoc with our physical health. This was the first time this was ever noticed and published about this, that our emotional uh, well-being can just cause all sorts of physical problems. Today we know many of these illnesses uh, enhance and sometimes cause emotional health problems. When um, we call these this, this emotional stress can cause diseases and stuff. And psychosomatic illnesses can interfere with blood flow in the body, for instance. It, they can cause illness. They can cause a person to be very ill. They cause muscle tension. They cause certain glands to over-secrete and other glands to under-secrete uh, homeostasis. So you get all messed up by this, by emotions. Emotions can play a major role in your health. That's why you got to watch and be careful and study what the Bible says about and practice. Just don't study it. Put it into application the things about stress. If you struggle with stress, I encourage you, try singing hymns sometime. Praises to God. Turn on some good hymn music and sing along. There's so many you can just download off the internet. And as we've seen, many books of the Bible contain verses that support mental health. But the book of Proverbs, I told you at the beginning, we're going to talk at the end of this about the book of Proverbs. Proverbs alone is filled with so many verses that support mental health. What we know as psychology today. At one time, psychology totally disagreed with what was in the Bible, adamantly disagreeing with what was in the Bible. Oh my gosh, the science has come such a long way. And now, as we see through many of the papers I've shown you, and there's so many hundreds more I could, science is, uh, psychology is now many times starting to agree with the Bible and what it says in here. It's amazing. <laughs> if that doesn't show you that there's not a, a major conflict, science versus the Bible, science is coming along and saying now about psychology, wow, you know something? What was written even 1450 BC, 3,400 years ago is correct. It's amazing. Time and space don't allow me to, to, uh, to show you all the passages in the Bible on this, or even just the book of Psalms alone. But we'll take a look at a couple of things in Proverbs. There's so many in Proverbs, like I, this could take a whole nother couple of lessons, but we don't have time for this. But here's a few that uh, just out of the book of Proverbs that have been proven true by psychologists today. Proverbs 12 verse 4 says this, An excellent wife is a crown of her husband, uh, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Don't you love Proverbs? I mean, Solomon wrote a lot of these things and wow, there are some bizarre things in here, but boy, are they true. God's telling us here that a man who finds a good wife, is gonna be healthier. You find a high maintenance or a really stressful wife, um, or it could be the spouse, the reverse of the spouse, a man who's like this, that is not a good situation whatsoever. Men can be just as bad at this, but modern science is trying to tell us, hey, if you can find a good spouse, that really helps you and you, you benefit. In this case, it's talking about women. I took an article out of the American Journal of Men's Health. The September 2018 issue has a whole article about that, which is stated right in the Bible in the book of Proverbs. Uh, I'm taking a look at another one. Here's Proverbs 14:30. It says, tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but the envy makes the bones rot. Here God tells us to live peace with everyone. Well, we've already seen that a little bit, but here it is in Proverbs now. Not doing so causes emotional stress and thus will harm us and make us sick. Here's Proverbs 15:30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. God's telling us here that if we are happy emotionally, we're going to be healthier. I mean, he basically is saying that that was Moses' life and, 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 and other biblical characters. Science is now saying the exact same thing. That's one. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. What's this saying? Psychologically, God is telling us here that we should speak kindly to people. This adds to our uh, to their emotional health and their physical health. It benefits us too, but to them, yeah, it's a great one. Um, matter of fact, let me tell you on that. I had, when I worked in Illinois as a teacher in um, one school, I had a principal, his name was Bill Freeman. Probably the best principal I ever served under. I loved for him to come to my room. I invited him, you know, please come in my room anytime you get a chance. I want you to come in. He, he was such a gifted teacher. 
and uh, such a, a brilliant man and and um, principal. I love for him to come in the room and then to get feedback from him so that I could become a better teacher. I know some teachers, the last thing they want is a principal in the room. I always encourage principals, hey, come down, visit me. I want, I want your input. I want to become better. And I can't do that on my own. I need your input. So Bill used to do this. He would come in. He would sometimes be walking down the hall. He'd just walk into my lab and he'd be in there for a few minutes. He didn't stay very long because he was very busy, had a lot of teachers to follow and a lot of things to do as principals do. But he would be in there and he would come in for a little bit and then he would leave. And what was fascinating was often I would find, and sometimes he came in the room, I didn't know he was there because we were doing labs and stuff. But what, what Bill would do, how cool this was, Bill would then go back to his office sometime during the day. He'd take a piece of copier paper and he would take a yellow um, underlining pen, a uh, yellow marker, and he would make a big circle on a sheet of paper and he'd make a smiley face. And then he would take his ink pen and he would write something like, great job teaching, great illustration, enjoyed being in your class today. And then just, just like that, he would put it in the mailbox. After school, I come down and check my mailbox and here's this note. My gosh, how that made me feel. That made such an impact on me that I look forward to, <laughs> to hoping I would have one of these notes in there because it was so encouraging to me as a school teacher. So, let you in on a little secret that if you've worked at Fort Wilderness, maybe um, most people don't know this. What I did at Fort Wilderness is I took that, uh, that lesson that Bill Freeman taught me, and I did it with the summer staff at Fort. Now, I worked in the Nature Center, so I wasn't around a lot of the summer staff, but when I was walking across the grounds doing a class or um, going to the dining hall or something, if I saw somebody doing something nice for someone, for a camper, or if they're doing something very commendable, when I would go back to my, my office in the Nature Center, I would take out, I had little pieces of paper I took out, and I would just take a pen. It only took me a few moments, 10 seconds to do this, and I would just write down, great job. Saw you do this, and I would write down what they did, and like, great, that was awesome. Um, you know, God bless and things like this. And I would take it, and I would go later on in the day as I'm walking home, I'd walk by their um, the housing room for the summer staff, and I would stick it in the person's mailbox. I never signed them. Never signed them. So most people never knew I did it. They would get it. They knew it was probably from somebody on the grounds, uh, some of the full-time staff people, but I never acknowledged myself on it. That wasn't my point. The point was to let them know that somebody noticed them. I didn't want them to know it was me doing it, but I wanted to encourage them. And sometimes sitting at meals with these people and hearing them talk, Somebody sent me a note today um, or yesterday or something like that, a little smiley face thing and, and saying this. And they said, you know who's doing this? And they're like, no, I, I got one of those one time. Too. I never let on. I don't think anybody knew I was doing it. But the thing is, seeing their expression and how people would say at times, this really helped them. Yes, gracious words are like a honeycomb. It's sweetness to the soul, gives health to the body, mental health to the body and physical health. Or Proverbs 17.22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. This Here God is telling us exactly what studies have been telling us now, that making a person happy or getting them to laugh improves their health. And we're seeing so many papers now coming out showing this exact same thing. Well, Folks, we are out of time on this. There are so much more. We've just touched the, the, the tip of the iceberg on this. There are so many other psychological points, mental health points, and benefits that we can find by studying the Bible. I chose these few to show you. Science and the Bible are not in conflict. Yes, science was in conflict in the 1800s, early 1900s, in, in psychology and mental health with what the Bible says. But as science has grown a little older, a little wiser, they're seeing, wow, what was in the Bible is exactly true. It's not a crutch. This is good medicine. And I hope you learn through this, and I hope it benefits you. Try singing. Try being happy. Dance maybe a while. Um, maybe in your bedroom with nobody watching or whatever, but dance. Um, or going outside and dancing in front of people. Hey, you'll get a lot of people maybe laughing, and that'll be beneficial for them if you're up to that. But whatever. I want to thank you so much for joining me through this lesson and this series that we're doing, Science in the Bible. 
And again, you can always go to our website, get down more information. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd love if you would feel led by the Holy Spirit to help contribute and, and help us in our ministry that we get more uh, lessons out and we get to travel more. I'm always being um, uh, looking for opportunities and I'm being booked for speaking at places. I love going and doing seminars at places. Would love to do that for you and your group, your church, uh, whatever. Uh, please contact us um, at Evidence for Faith and let us, uh, you know, let us know how you're feeling and what you're doing. And thank you so much for your prayers and support. Until we meet again, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.